last uh, study was uh, the emotion of, of love, and we've been going through looking at our various emotions and, and the way they can affect us physically and mentally as, as well as spiritually. And, and among other things we've noted so far that, that probably more than most people realize their physical health is, is tied into their emotions. And we'll especially see that next week when we look at, at stress. But in the ones we've looked at so far, that, that unless a person learns to control his emotions and or her emotions and learns to understand them, uh, you can literally destroy yourself. And you can bring all kinds of sicknesses and problems by just simply not controlling the emotions. Now, love is interesting for several reasons. And what I'm going to do, I debated which way to go at it first. And I've decided I'm going to go with the statements in the Bible first, and then this here. This book, uh, called Love, Hate, Fear, and Anger, and we're going to concern ourselves with the chapters on love, uh, written by June Callwood, is written from the standpoint of an atheist, a psychiatrist, uh, who is looking at uh, human beings uh, and studying the emotions, and with the attitude that only that is to be accepted, which can be validated by scientific experiments. And so we're going to look at what a, an atheist psychiatrist would say about love at the present time, and from the standpoint of all the studies. But before looking at it, one thing to keep in mind as we look at what the Bible says on it, that when you read these lofty statements about love in the Bible, we take a lot of it for granted because we've all been raised in a society that puts a certain amount of emphasis on love and looks at it as, as something that is the ultimate in relationships. And so even if we don't have it or don't experience it, we, we look at it as something that is an ultimate in a relationship. We think it's something that's attractive uh, to see. But we are unique in that when you look at humanity going back through the centuries that it is the first law of Moses that introduces mankind uh, to a definite to a love and a definition of love that is different uh, than he has experienced in any of the idolatrous uh, religions or in any place anywhere in the world and then Christianity deals with love in a way that really is unique to Christianity in other words, you, you simply can't take the writings uh, of the apostles uh, and the record of what Jesus says and say, hey, you know, that, uh, that I'm going to go back and I'm going to study Plato and Socrates and Aristotle or whoever it is, and I'm going to find the origin uh, of that thinking. And by the way, that is the way you normally study philosophers. There's, there's nothing original with human beings that we simply take what we've been given and we improve on it. And, and one can go back, for example, and look at Plato, and then you can look at Socrates, and you'll have no problem figuring out that Plato was a disciple of Socrates, or that Aristotle was a, a disciple of Socrates. And that Socrates, you can take him and go behind him, and you can see who, who he followed and, and what he put together. Uh, you can take Muhammad, and you can look at the various philosophies that, that he came in contact with, and then see where his thinking and his teaching came from. And this is true of, of anything I know of in history relative to a philosophy of life. But when we look at these statements in the New Testament, 
you're going to look at something that, again, we take for granted because we just heard it and we've been brought up with it. And, and because we have, we may even miss some of the beauty of it because it is unique to Christianity, uh, the concept of, of love in the way that it's taught here. But we're going to look at what it actually says, and then we'll go and look at uh, what an atheist uh, psychiatrist would say, uh, having studied humanity uh, concerning this one thing of love. Uh, first, let's look at the Old Testament. You got your Bibles handy. Uh, does anybody? There's. Is there any extra Bibles floating around, Bob? Or a couple on the other side of the hand. Okay. okay. Who needs one? Yes. There's. Oh, yeah. Caroline, yeah. 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 Leviticus, the 19th chapter, and verse 18. We'll start. This is in the Law of Moses. Okay, and verse 18 of Leviticus 19. Uh, Mark, would you read that, please? Mark Hall. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, so here is the law of Moses before Christ, and you've got this statement do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he doesn't just tell you to love him, uh, he tells you what he's talking about. He said the same kind of feeling that you have about yourself, you have that about your neighbor. Love yourself, I am the Lord. Okay, now, turn over to Deuteronomy 6, write the numbers, and then Deuteronomy 6, and verse 5. Let's see, you got that, Deuteronomy 6, and verse 5. Uh, Luke, would you read that, please? Okay, so two commands here, um, love your neighbor as yourself, and then to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, or all your soul and, and all your strength, as he words it in this context. Now, come on over to the New Testament, to uh, Matthew 37. Twenty-seven. Well, uh, twenty-two. I, no, what it is, it's thirty-seven. I mean, verse thirty-seven. Okay. But it's twenty-two. Okay. I don't know what I'm thinking about. I know Matthew has twenty-eight chapters. Twenty-two, verse Matthew twenty-two. And uh, we'll look at verse 36 and get the question, and, and then read through 40. So 36 and through 40. Uh, Mitchell, have you got that? Yeah. Okay, would you read that please, verse 36 through 40? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with, all, and with your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay, so we're still talking about the Old Testament. And I point this out because the Old Testament is sometimes misrepresented uh, by trying to portray a God of the Old Testament that's different than the God of the New. Uh, when Jesus was asked what the two greatest commandments of the law were, he went back to the Old Testament and quoted, and he said the two that we just read, love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and then he said the second is like unto it. In other words, it doesn't drop. It's, just, it's like unto it. It's just like it. He said... Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to say that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, everything that the law and the prophets had to say about morality and about the relationship of, of mankind really hung on those two commandments. That uh, if these two commandments are fulfilled, they're going to take care of, of everything else. Okay, now, move from uh, Matthew on over to uh, Romans, the 13th chapter. I don't think the reason for that is obvious. He loves somebody, you're not going to Yeah, that's where, yeah, okay. yeah that's what that. It's Romans, the 13th chapter. Uh, Brian, would you read that uh, 13 and verses uh, 8 through 10? Okay. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, no, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay, so he's really saying that when it comes to commandments that if you love someone, then obviously you don't commit adultery with his wife. Uh, if you would, then you obviously don't love that person. And, and you, you do not steal from somebody you love. You don't lie about somebody you love. You don't covet what belongs to someone you love. If you love your parents, you are concerned about them in their old age and providing and, and caring for them. If you love your children, you're concerned about bringing your children up and doing what's, what's right there. And so he said, love and all these other commandments do is, is teach you how to express love. But in reality, he said, love will do it naturally. That if you love, that there are certain things that just simply... Uh, will take place. Okay, now, coming over here to the next book, 1 Corinthians. And remember, we haven't proved anything yet or made, made the point we're going to make. We're just <coughs> emphasizing that the Bible exalts love all the way through as the ultimate in human relations and, <laughs> and puts it as the uh, the end result, in other words, that all laws and everything derive uh, from this thing of love. And it puts it forth as the best possible thing uh, that man can do. All right, in 1 Corinthians 13, 
Uh, beginning with verse 4, we get a definition of love. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. And let's see, uh, Carol, would you read uh, 4 through... Um, Nine, let's see, or four through ten, and then read verse thirteen. Four through ten, and then verse thirteen. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities. Wait, wait a minute. Are, did I get First Corinthians thirteen or twelve? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a rather unique translation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now let me think this through again. Which thirteen? Uh, verse four. Start there. Through, through 10. 10 and then 13. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not pray itself. Is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, where there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in, prophesy in part. And, and now abide in faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, so verse 13 now abides faith, hope, and love. But again, the emphasis, the greatest of these uh, is love. Okay, faith will eventually be fulfilled. Hope will eventually be realized. But the quantity that goes on through all eternity is the concept of love. Okay, now notice his definition of what love actually is. In verse 4, love is patient, uh, it's kind. Uh, how many times have you heard an individual or watched them conduct themselves in such a way that was impatient, uh, unkind, and yet say what? Yes, uh, I love you even though I'm doing all these things. You just have to understand that's the way I am. I'm just impatient and I'm not kind, you know. Well, they're saying, they're saying they love because they've got it in their head that's the right thing to do. But in reality, love is patient. And if I'm not willing to be patient with somebody, then I really don't love them to the extent that I should. You're, you're patient with people that you love. And love is kind. You're kind. To people that you love. We don't envy people that we love. Uh, we don't boast around people. In other words, when we boast or we're proud, that is an attitude of esteeming oneself above another person. And, and so if, if we love another person as ourself, then we obviously do not esteem ourselves above that person. And so therefore that wipes out boasting and, and being proud. It's like a, a if you've got somebody you really love, you're not bragging because you can beat them in anything. You know, it's, it's, uh, you, you have no desire uh, to be elevated above them. Um, love does not delight uh, in evil. It rejoices with truth. It, and love has an attitude of, towards others of always protecting, uh, always wanting to trust, always hoping, always persevering. It, it just simply doesn't fail. Okay? So... Obviously, Jesus, Moses, Jesus, Paul, consistent all the way through. We have this, this concept elevated above everything else. Uh, now come over to, uh, move over a little further.
towards the end. First John. Uh, let's see. First John four. And beginning with verse uh, sixteen. It's actually right now, beginning with verse sixteen. I'm looking at a little bitty print here, that's why I'm Hey, Dave. Uh, is that large enough print for you to see? No, I see it. It's all right. Mm. Well, here's some larger print that's than okay. mine. Okay. okay uh, yeah. Yeah, if that's not good enough you can see, Mickey, we can skip over. Oh, that's okay. You go, you go right ahead. I'm listening. Okay, that's good. Uh, Mark, would you take that then? In verse, uh, starting with verse 16 on through verse 21. Okay. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in Him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. <coughs> and he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Okay, now, notice we, we not only have this love exalted, but a statement says, if you were to define God in one word, it would be love. God is love. And all of the other qualities of God, even his justice, uh, his fairness, whatever, whatever it is, would come from this one quality. So he said you can literally define him as being love. Now, again, we think, well, you know, that's what we would expect. But remember that as God, of the God of the Old Testament, is introduced to the world through Moses, that there are all kinds of idols. I mean, there's Baal, there's the Astra, there's all of these idols. I mean, you name it, and it's there, and it represents everything. Not a single solitary one ever exalted the concept of love. Not a single idol ever referred to himself as love. Or if they did, or if it was love, it was love in the sexual and the sensual sense. Now, let's get a look at the the word itself in the. Greek language that uh, the New Testament is translated from, the Greeks had several words for love. There was the word agape, the word phileo. In fact, Philadelphia is named after the word phileo, the city of brotherly love. Uh, there was the word eros, uh, eros, uh, erotic. Our English word erotic comes from eros, and it was sexual love. And then there was storke, which was a, the kind of love that brothers and sisters have for one another. And then there's agape, okay, the, the only one that is commanded all through the Bible and through the New Testament specifically is this word agape. And agape simply means an attitude of heart where you do what is right for the other person, whether or not you feel like doing it and whether or not he deserves it. So an attitude of heart where you go, you're going to do right and it doesn't matter about him or what he's done. Remember, even going back in the, the, what we read in Leviticus, it says, don't hate him, don't take vengeance, but rather love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't matter what he's done. It doesn't matter how bad he is. That you make the choice to esteem that person in such a way that you want what is best for the other person. 
and you're going to conduct yourself in such a way that it is what is best for the other person. That concept in religion is absolutely unique to the religion of the Bible. It's found in no idolatrous thing. The only love that any of the idols knew anything about was a sexual uh, and a sensual type love. A lot of what people call love today is not love. For example, I'll quote uh, the psychiatrist here, speaking from an atheist standpoint, but uh, she hits the nail on the head. She says, romantic love, what we call romantic love, is in reality the combination of two feelings, loneliness and sexual desire. And she said this combination of loneliness plus sexual desire is what it, the two come together and make what we call romantic love. And then from the studies, they go ahead and point out that, for example, Don Juan, uh, full study on him, Don Juan hated women. Uh, and his, his love for women was strictly a conquering and a sexual type thing. And the same is true with Earl Flynn, noted as the great lover of our movie thing. He hated women. And it was always one after the other, and it was a conquering and a sexual thing. But he actually hated women. And we're, I'm not talking about theories or anything. I'm talking about the, the facts and, and what the guy actually felt. And if you'll notice in the Hollywood idea of love, these great romantic lovers that are paraded before our young people as the ultimate, you know, and everything like that, notice they're never satisfied with, with one. It's always one after the other after the other. Because in reality, what they're after is a, a conquering and a sexual fulfillment and, and their own needs. All right? the, the love that we find that is called love in the world and, and throughout history is a love that where people want it towards themselves. In other words, everybody wants to be loved. But the concept of you giving love Instead of looking at people from the standpoint of, I want you to love me. But the concept of, I'm going to love you whether or not you love me. That is unique to Christianity and to the Bible. It, it was uttered in the Old Testament. But it was never really emphasized and brought about into the New Testament. Now, something else that is unique to the New Testament, and, we're going, we're, and we'll see the why, the need for this. Uh, we, we hit on it there in John. He said, a motivating force for this kind of love. He says, we love why? Because he first loved us. In other words, that, that we don't just naturally love. That someone loves us first, and then we love. So he says, Christians are called on to do this because they've experienced the love of God, and so therefore they love well, notice, let's read one more statement, and then we'll look at it from a psychiatrist's point of view. Paul, that's not necessarily true with your children, though, is it? Well, we're talking about Christians here in the relationship with God. That, that, uh, uh, well, it's not necessarily true. What I'm talking about, I, I mean, we don't love our children because they've done anything toward us, or, I mean, we love them naturally, just like God loves us naturally. Right. You have the same relationship to your children... <coughs> that God has towards you. But now it is in the reverse. Your child will love you if and because you've loved him. And if you don't, the child won't. But the parent has to initiate. Uh, I've got a biological father that I'm numb. 
I have no feeling. You know, see, I have absolutely no feeling. Uh, he's just a man on the a street out there to me. I mean, he never, he never did anything. He didn't love me. He never showed anything. So I have no feeling there. Uh, none, none whatsoever. I can't even make myself have feeling. I can, I can make myself do the right thing if I'm around him, but I can't make myself I have, have the feelings and you all that. You can't make yourself for Right. You cannot the, make the, yourself for Right. Life. And so that God, we, I'm saying the love that it is in a Christian, that there is a motivating force for it. Yeah, no, on the one hand, it's commanded. But then the motivating force is the understanding that God first loved us and then what he has done. And then that calls forth a love for God. That in turn calls forth a doing with what God wants done. Okay, look at this in Romans 5. And this will be the last one in the Bible. And we'll go ahead and uh, uh, look then at uh, uh, the other source. Paul, you think uh, I had a girl who was, uh, I guess, well, she has her master's in psychology, I guess, but she made the statement that uh, parents love their children more than children love their parents. And uh, I agree with I, that. I think that's true, don't you? And I wonder if that, that is the same, I mean, like, we can't love God like he loves us. Because, his, of course, his is perfect love. Our love toward our children is not perfect. But I do think that's a true statement. I think as children age and mature, that they will reach a point where they love their parent. I think that now I love my mother as much as she loves me. And I and it has been, you know, for some years. You know, and, and, and you find a lot of people that will make all kinds of sacrifices for their parents and things like that. Mm -hmm. But as a young person, I think it started off one way. You know, it was her. And then there was some response back. Uh, but, I mean, look at uh, a child Sarah's age. If uh, Nancy doesn't uh, meet her needs, she's liable to turn around and tell her she hates her. You know, and, and or she's, she's liable to throw a fit, holler, or anything like that. In other words, her feelings for Nancy is based entirely on Nancy meeting her needs. But as she grows and matures, somewhere along the line she'll come to understand what the mother has done and she will begin to reciprocate. Well, in our relationship with God, it starts out with God. And, and we don't just start loving God. It starts out by our realizing and thinking uh, and being taught about what God has done and how much he cares for us. And then the force comes. So he says, we love because he first loved loves. But I agree with what she's saying. The child for a long period of time does not have the same in fact, I don't even know what age that the child catches up. I think they get up into adulthood. They're born, they're just very selfish. Right, depends on the person. Whatever right. they want, they want. Children are very selfish. Yeah. Well, they have to uh, learn. Two, one reason, of course, they, they say that's the greatest uh, loss that a, a human can experience on earth is the loss of a child. So when you think of your children and you think of your mother, for instance, do you have as much love for your mother as you do your children? Um, you? I, it's a different type. Yeah. I couldn't, yeah. uh, can't it's a different it. type. In other words, the difference would be if my mother died, for example, yeah, I would cry and it would hurt me, but I'm thinking of her as one that has lived a full life and her body's wore out and all. Whereas if one of my child children dies, then I'm thinking, you know, they've still got their life ahead of them. 
And so it would hurt more from that standpoint that they haven't got to fully experience life and all. But no, I'd, I'd say the quality, I would love my mother. In other words, I can think now, I know all she did and the sacrifices and things. So yes, I think the love would be equal, but it would be a different, different. It's a different yeah. type. And I think another thing with your children, so far as your love for them, whatever they do that's wrong or whatever mistake, there's always the feeling that, hey, I got them as a blank sheet. <laughs> and how much of this am I the cause of, you know, and everything. There's always that feeling. And there's that understanding there. Mark? Uh, do you think in the same way that that's why sometimes people, um, you know, like John Clayton, for instance, an, an atheist who, who once he comes in contact, has an understanding of God and understands what God has done for him, that he's more, it's like it, it, it impacts him in such a way that it, that it totally changes their life versus somebody who just gradually grows up through it and it, it's like it's taken for granted or something. I think there's a, 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 a real sense in which that's true, Mark, it can be. Uh, a good example, I think this individual that is living in a situation where they don't always get enough to eat and you put a full meal I think they appreciate it like all oh, get out. But I think the person that doesn't know what it is to go hungry and not be able to get something, I think sometimes they can just take it for granted. And I think you, you, you really appreciate water when you're thirsty, and you appreciate food when you're hungry. And I know even in your marriage relationships, you, you know, you go on day in and day out, but then when you've been separated for four, five, six days, or a period of time for a job or something, and then you begin to appreciate a lot of things you took for granted. And I think in that sense that people that are uh, converted and have experienced another life, that there is maybe a fuller understanding and appreciation of this. Fuller appreciation, maybe not fuller understanding. Right, that, that's good, Gene. That's good. Fuller, maybe fuller appreciation. All right, look at this in uh, and, and Romans 5. And not because the kids don't love their parents, it's just the, the degree to which they love right. them. But, but I, it's a type, too, because, uh, well, I don't know how to explain it, but, but there's a different kind of love between a person and his parents yeah. and his children. Right. It's, it's because the demands are different, for one thing. The demands are totally different. Right. Needs are right. different. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's always, it, it seems like it's more conditional than unconditional with your children. Yeah, it's going to be uh, more conditional all the way through. Look, I think that uh, we'll notice some unique things about love that's different from any other emotion that we can have. Uh, in the fifth chapter, let's see, uh, Alvin, would you read that through the, uh, uh, the eighth verse? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into His grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, 
because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay. Look at, uh, <clears throat> notice when he talks about the love of God being shed in our, brought in our heart, it's not through some mystical act. In fact, uh, it, it wouldn't prove anything if I loved God because God had did something mystical to me in some way. Just like it wouldn't prove anything to me if my child loved me because uh, somebody zapped him up with a special chemical or something like that. But what, what has been, what the Holy Spirit, he's speaking of God, the guidance here, that the knowledge that we gain that even while we were in rebellion against God and while we were sinning and while we were selfish and while we were doing our own thing, that Christ died for us. And that he says somebody might die for a good man or for a righteous man, but we're, while we were contrary to him, you know, he died for us. And so it's that understanding that, that even when we were spitting in his face, we were walking contrary to the way we ought to go, that he loved us to the extent that he would die for us. Now keep in mind that impact of that kind of love will only take place in your mind if indeed you believe it's a historical fact. And if a person doesn't believe that, then the first thing, and, and by the way nobody should believe it unless it's proven to them, I sure didn't believe it, then the first thing that needs to be done is to examine the evidence for the event itself. And then after examining the evidence, then we come to realize this, that we're not dealing with Santa Claus, we're dealing with historical information that can be evaluated. Well, then we think on it and we think, hey, uh, even though I deserve something else, uh, he loved me to the extent that he would actually die for me. And then so my love comes for that reason. So the motivating force for the Christian is, is love that has been displayed towards him and he in turn reciprocates. Now, notice this is... Uh, some statements here. I'm, I'm going to read uh, some, some that I've got highlighted. But these are statements now from a psychiatrist, uh, not a Christian, uh, who's studying this from strictly a scientific basis. All right, it says, number one, love is the only emotion that is not natural. The only one that has to be learned and the only one that matters. And so he makes the observation first, love is something that is learned. Uh, nobody has to teach you to hate. Nobody has to teach you to get mad. Uh, nobody has to teach you uh, to have anxiety. Nobody has to teach you uh, to get depressed. Uh, nobody has to teach you to have different fears and things like that. They just come as natural response. But he said, love is unique in that it is something that is taught, and yet he said it's the only emotion that really matters. He says, in recent years, psychologists and psychiatrists have been making discoveries about love which tend to disprove 3,000 years of poetry. Real love is a skill rarely learned before the age of 35. 
Okay, but I'm not, uh, and I, I'm just going to debate. Suffice it to say that this psychiatrist is saying that love is a skill that's learned, and, and there is maturity involved before a person comes to understand it. No love, not even maternal love, is instinctive or innate. And there are women who do not love their children. And there are women that have been brought up in such a way that, and men that have been brought up in such a way that they find it, they find themselves incapable of displaying love. And if a person has been brought up in a home where the parents did not show love towards them, the mother and the father did not show love, they maybe even abused them, this child, if something doesn't change, will grow up to an individual that finds it next to impossible to show love. Uh, and so it's, it's, the, it's something that is, is going to be learned. It is a skill. It says, yet, despite this, the world never needed the knack of loving more than it does at this minute. If universal slaughter is to be averted, talking about the time of the atom bomb and all, an Indian woman speaking at a mental health conference in Paris in 1961 drew a standing ovation when she risked ridicule and urged that the world arm itself with the perfect love that cast out fear. In the Adam age, she said simply, there is no other way whereby man can survive. Many experts believe that love can be accomplished only by people who have spent the first 20 years of their lives in a harmonious loving family, a requirement that accounts for the observable scarcity of mature love in modern society. There is, however, a baffling proportion of adults who endured what should have been a blighting childhood but managed anyway to teach themselves how to love by valiantly, stubbornly, patiently putting forth confidence instead of distrust. Okay, the emotionally self-educated are among the most remarkable and heroic people on earth. In other words, they're saying, number one, this is something that is learned. But number two, it can be learned that if a person puts forth the effort, they can learn it. Okay, now, love has been found to be so vital for babies that a total absence of it will either kill them or reduce them to being imbeciles or madness. Doctors now seriously term love as a nutrient and compare its role with iodine and vitamin C. There is some evidence that love even influences the growth of children's bones. It certainly affects a child's ability to learn at school. It is the foundation of emotional health. Now here's an atheist psychiatrist. Love is the foundation of emotional health. The magic wand that lifts the curse of self-dislike. Inability to love is the definition of hell. Now this is an atheist writing. The inability to love is the definition of hell. Love is the most desired commodity in the world. It is the only emotion whose existence can make life a personal triumph. It is not surprising that even preposterous forms of love are hard to refuse. A life without love, according to the modern psychologist, is a life of destruction and insanity. They also have discovered that while anger, hate, and guilt bloom in the bassinet, Love, sympathy, and tact require decades of steady tutelage. 
love scientists feel. Let's notice scientists. Love scientists feel is a personality's victory over unavoidable doubt and worry that traces the spoils of humanity. Um, an infant, let's see, let me get down here, right here, a study of some children. The post-war years when thousands of displaced children tragically were available for study provided evidence. They're talking about, of course, World War II, where thousands and thousands of parents were killed. And so we have these children now to bring up. And in the process, psychiatrists studied these children as they were brought up in different situations. It provided evidence for what psychiatrists had suspected, but never proven, that humans put down foundations for loving in their infancy. And if the early start is muffed, the personality may teeter everlastingly neurotic. One famous study by Dr. Renee Spitz dealt with 239 children who had been institutionalized from their birth for a year or more. About half of them being cared for by their mothers in the institution. The rest by overworked personnel at the ratio of one nurse for 10 babies. The mother babies had no fatalities and were progressing normally when scientists examined them. In the other group, although nourishment was of high standard, the same as for the first group, and health precautions were rigidly observed, 37% of the babies died. The only difference in their care had been that no one had time to cuddle or croon the motherless babies. With one or two exceptions, Dr. Spitz found that survivors in the second group were human wrecks who behaved either in the manner of agitated or apathetic idiots. Love hunger is a deficiency disease, exactly a salt hunger, remarked Dr. Abraham Maslow. Any of you have done any graduate work, you've come in contact with Maslow of Brandeis University. Alarmingly, psychopathic mothers produce children exactly like themselves. And the reason is they don't love. And ladies who do not have the capacity to love and bear children, the children will be like them, not for any physical reason, but because they've been love-starved from infancy in the same way that maybe the mother was love-starved also. All right, he goes on with a number of studies. Uh, it says, the state of being loved, as internists know, is also good for digestion and circulation. Uh, gastrointestinal disease, according to an investigation with the Chicago Institute for Psychoanalysis, is related to love deficiency. And so surprisingly is diabetes. We crave for love, and we never will have enough love. It goes on and talks about alcoholism, delinquency, homosexuality, etc., etc., that much of it has its origin in a lack of love. And that uh, homosexuality, I don't know how much reading you've done on this, but in recent years I've done a lot of reading on it because I think it's something that we're going to, we need to deal with in a right way in the future from a standpoint of re reaching people for, uh, for Christ. But the one thing they all have in common is that there is a definite correlation between homosexuals and having childhood where there was not a love relationship with the father. And so subconsciously, psychologically, there is that desire for love. You're talking about male homosexuals. Right. That there's a correlation with 
with men uh, in a situation where, there, where they had fathers that simply did not display love towards them. And they, and, and they grew up, and there is this, if there was no other, now with a lot of children, they're fortunate in that there are other males. Maybe it's an uncle, maybe it's a grandfather, or something like that that steps in and fulfills that. But if that is not fulfilled, they say there is that desire for that love, even though the child doesn't understand it. And then somewhere in life, when their sexual drive develops, their sexual drive is developing, and yet they have this desire from that, for that they never had from a father, and says, put me in the wrong tutelage, that that can become confused, and they tie the two together. And says they don't realize what's happened, but it's strictly a, a psychological thing. But suffice it to say that he goes on with a number of other diseases and problems and all. Number one, love is something that is not natural. And yet the interesting thing is, it's essential. And when he says all the, oh, he said all the studies are in agreement. This is not just a theory. All the studies bear witness that when you're bringing children up, that the ingredient of love is one of the most important things. And that is, is an essential ingredient. It's essential to our physical health. It's essential to our mental health. It's essential to our well-being, to our bringing our children up and everything like that. But that essential ingredient is not something we're born with. It's something that we have to be taught. Okay, now we look at all of the philosophy of the world all through history. And there is only one source that consistently, all the way through, taught this concept of love as an essential for human relations and is the ultimate in human relations, and that is the God of life. I mean, it's absolutely, we again live in a society that has so benefited from this that we take it for granted. A lot of people that don't go to church or don't, or don't even think about it don't realize that these things that they take for granted that, that help make us different than a lot of people that are in a pagan society come because of the teaching of the scriptures and the influence it's had on the minds of so many people in our society. But it is absolutely unique to the Bible. No other religious person, no other philosopher, no other way of life. Uh, and all the way through, it's exalted as the ultimate. And so now we're in a situation where even when atheists, psychiatrists study emotions, they said, yes, you have to have this. It's a learned commodity. You can learn it. Even if you didn't get it as a child, he says, you can learn it and all. But yet, it's not taught anywhere, and yet it's exalted all the way through the scriptures. And even the statement that God is love, that's unique to the God of the Bible. It doesn't, it doesn't go with any of the other idols or pagan gods through history. It's also why I believe, like we've talked a lot about Christian evidences, and that we've said a lot of people that have become Christians who really had not studied the evidences out in a sophisticated way, but see, even though they didn't call it evidence, one of the great evidences that came across to them intuitively is that we all crave love. But it's there. We may not realize it. Uh, our macho males may not want to admit it, but there is an there is an absolute craving to be loved. And so, therefore, all through the centuries, when people have studied that, it has met that craving. 
The very thing that they craved is what was exalted and taught all the way through, and there was that inner identification with that principle. There would be some religions who that had their derivation from like the Bible that would have similar teaching. That's good, Mark. That when you when you look at say, uh, for example, even there you don't find it to the extent like the Muslim religion. The, the Muslims borrowed from uh, the Jews, and they borrowed from Christianity, and then Muhammad threw in his two cents. Well, when he threw in his two cents, he messed it up. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the good part about the Muslim religion was borrowed from Judaism and Christianity. In Muslim, and uh, Muhammad got hold of this, and by the time he was through with it, a man could own four women as his wives, and, and love was a very selfish thing. You know, and uh, so that, uh, but you do see a lot of the love there that he borrowed. All right, the same with the Mormon religion and Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and all. Uh, again, everything that's good in the Book of Mormon was taken right out of the Bible. I mean, they'll, they'll come and, and they'll show you their book and, and such and such and such. And I say, I agree with that. But you don't have to read it there. You can read it over here. Uh, everything good about the Book of Mormon is in the Bible. And the rest of it is nonsense. Uh, it just uh, there's no other way. It's just that it's just that way, and it, it won't stand the test. But you're right. That's a good point to make. That that you will find love taught in other things to the extent that it's been influenced. But it's not a natural thing that comes from man. He has to be taught it because it's a selfless thing and a giving thing. What comes natural to man is what we see in a child: giving, giving, giving. You know, little little kindergarten children. If you've ever, it'd be interesting. Anybody that hasn't had the experience to sit in a kindergarten class or a preschool class for a few weeks, they'll conk one another in the head. They'll gouge one another and they'll pinch one another and they'll spit on one another and they'll walk up and just grab something away from one another. They have to be taught to love. It just it just isn't their natural. And you go into the inner city and in some of these places where people have not been taught in a religious way, they shoot one another. I mean, look at the homicide rate in, in, in the inner city and in, in areas where that kind of lifestyle prevails. They shoot one another, they steal from one another, they hate one, they hate one another, they curse one another. I mean, that is, that is they don't have to be taught that. That's the natural man. Uh, the, the love is something that will, ha and, and by the way, that cycle will not be broken until Christians realize that they've got a responsibility to, to get out of our monasteries and, and get in there and get our feet dirty and, and, and start loving those people that are in reality unlovable. Uh, and, and then it's as people are loved that they begin to learn something about love and then also they will find this same inner identification with the with the God of the Bible and with those principles that are that's, taught. That's the story of the cross and the switchblade, isn't it? Yeah. That's great. I, that. I read that years back, and uh, I would have loved, they made a movie on it. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen the movie, and I, somehow or another I just missed it. But uh, I met a David book or something. Okay, it, it was a true story, but literally the power of, of love. Uh, somebody that was Especially literally... Especially the fact that when they realize that you love me enough to help me even though they know they're unlovable. Right. I watched the movie. Yeah. And, uh, and you I saw know. the movie? That's okay. 
But the, I think that's it. Knowing that you're unlovable and see, like, remember Jesus when he's talking about love, he said the Gentiles love those that love them. I mean, the kind of thing where you will love somebody who has loved you. He said they're capable of that. But this business of of loving somebody even though they don't love you, and and they maybe even mistreat you, that is absolutely unique to Christianity. It's just simply another point you made too was you you have people over because you know they'll have you back and so forth. The real test is fellowship. It's having people over that you know probably right. won't ever have. You. Right. We and we sometimes do things for people knowing that they can return a favor probably. towards us. And Jesus said the real test is. Do and give, expecting nothing in return, and that's a God thing. Well, Jesus uh, made it very plain when He said, "If you love somebody, who loves you. You haven't accomplished anything. Sinners do that. It's right. Loving the one that doesn't love you is what counts." Right. And I know our two-year-olds. You know, that's the first thing we teach our children is to share, because you get two toddlers together, and it's well, it's sure isn't natural. No, and, no, and they're <laughs> no. just grab and jerk, and then so sharing's the first thing you have to yeah. teach a child, right. and. Well, you know, the interesting thing, though, you, you think, well, how can a, an atheist psychiatrist come to those tremendous conclusions through mm -hmm. scientific study and not be impressed with this right here? Yeah, well, here again, they tell you. They deal with Christianity. And here's, here's the problem. People, obviously, that are, that are not going to church, you're going to judge. Uh, I'm going to judge Mormons by the Mormons I meet and what I see in them. And the and, and same with anyone else. And so on, it said that Christianity has set out a mi mixed message. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, there is this message of love, but on the other hand, some of the most horrible acts in history have been committed in the name of, of Christ. Mm -hmm. There was the uh, Crusaders who, were, who warred against the Muslims and went down and they were going to conquer the Holy Land and that war went on for 200 years and thousands and thousands of people. And of course you and I know that the Pope in Rome the Inquisition is, was... Right, the, right, the Inquisition, the, the same thing. Uh, we know how that when the white Christians came to this country, uh, how that many times they treated the Indian. We know that how that white people uh, went to Africa and bought slaves and justified it with the Bible. But the point there, all of those acts would be condemned in the scriptures. And it's our job to point out, just like uh, people in the world today look at some of our movies and they judge America by that. And, and sometimes we would just like to shout, hey, we're, we're not all out here shooting one another. Well, you know, that's, that's, uh, that, that doesn't define what we're about, that those people are the exception to the rule. If you're looking to criticize as atheists are Christians, you're going to look for the worst Christian. Yeah, but uh, then you've got plenty of Christians. But see what happens, Gene, on, on these people when they study. The Bible to them is a book, just like the Book of Mormon or any other yeah. book. And it's a big book, the whole thing, Old and New Testament. And so they look at history and all of this, and then they just, in other words, they don't get down and really diligently study that book or, or anything like that. They just simply look, and when they look at Christianity, they're looking not only at the Bible, but they're looking to all of those written materials of the Roman church. Uh, that, I mean, after all, he claims to be Christ's vicar on this earth. And they're looking to all these other people, Jimmy Swaggart, Jim and Tammy and all, who have, I mean, after all, don't they get up and preach and say, hey, God has laid this on my heart? 
Right, and so they look at that, and again, it's, uh, you know, we know that a Christian is, a real Christian, uh, from the biblical definition, is one who is striving to emulate Christ in his life. And there, and there are all kinds of people that may call him something that's, that's not. And that even if every professing Christian lived that way, that still does not negate what this teaches. It, it, you know, it teaches something no matter what, whether it's That's why they initially reject it, because right. of the way so-called Christians live. Right. And right now, uh, Christians uh, a lot do a tremendous job of criticizing our society and all the bad things in it. And, and why don't these people go to church, etc., etc.? Well, if all I knew about the church was what I see in Jimmy Swagger, Jim and Tammy, and, and a lot of other situations, I wouldn't be there either. You see, that's, I mean, I can understand why they would feel that way. So it, what, what she said in the book is that Christians send out a mixed message. There is this book that says that. But then when they look at so many professing Christians, another message is coming through. And, and the worst enemy we have are those who profess Christianity and then are, are not. When was that book written? Uh, it would have been after the... Uh -huh. Okay, she's reminding me I'm going over as usual. Uh, guys, get up and stretch. I'm moving there for refreshments. Uh, it's in 1964. I thought it sounded like it might be a little older, some of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, Paul, you talking about the, whether we have a hard time seeing a lot of that. If you were to ask anybody that's grown up in a, a good home or whatever, if they would swap that background for, like, growing up in a, a Muslim background with three women in the home, you know, a man and three women, Right. They wouldn't do it. Or in, in the Mormon system, they wouldn't do that. And uh, it's, it's, it'd be hard for me to picture a better setup than the way you know, the, the Christian home is. You know, one man, one woman. And, and see, on this same thing, talking about the evidence back you know, Jesus said, The world will know you're my disciples, the love you have one for another. When, it, when somebody visits our service, one of the most important things is the warmth factor among the people and the relationship and the love for one another because that person, no matter what their background, and I don't care if they come from the inner city, they are made in the image of God. And this guy may be sitting there, standing there with muscles all over him and, and, and macho as he can be and not willing to admit it, but deep down he's craving for love. Every human being has. And so he walks into this atmosphere and the very thing he's craving for, if it's met there, he's going to have a desire to come in.